As many of our UNT students face unexpected challenges and expenses related to the coronavirus, the new UNT CARES Fund is here to help them persevere. Gifts made to this special fund will meet short-term needs so our students can continue to have long-term success. Visit one.unt.edu slash untcares to make a gift today. Your generosity will go a long way in helping UNT students stay safe, healthy, and on track to graduate. You're listening to the Ollie at UNT Alumni Spotlight Series, presented by the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at UNT and the UNT Alumni Association. The Alumni Association is open to all friends of UNT who are interested in serving, supporting, and celebrating the university. To learn more, visit untalumni.com. To learn more about Ollie at UNT, please visit our website, olli.unt.edu. Now let's join our host, Ali at UNT member, Susan Supak. This is Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas in Denton, Texas, known to most of us as Ali. This is the first of our Alumni Spotlight series produced in conjunction with the UNT Alumni Association, highlighting notable alumni from the University of North Texas. I'm excited to be kicking off our new series with an extremely interesting UNT alumnus, John Matthews, a prolific author, award-winning winemaker and former Dallas police officer involved in some mighty interesting cases. John received his BA from UNT in 1983 and an MBA from UNT in 1987. In 1983, he started with the Dallas Police Department, where he served the city for more than 15 years. After leaving the Dallas Police Department, John formed the Community Safety Institute, a public safety consulting group conducting research on mass shootings and the prevention of future mass shooting tragedies. He has presented training programs to schools and such organizations as the Department of Justice, the Department of Homeland Security, and the Department of Defense. John appeared regularly as a CNN and Fox News analyst, as well as a White House advisor. His media appearances have also included NBC Nightly News, The O'Reilly Report, Good Morning New York, Good Morning Texas, Good Day Dallas, and many other local ABC, CBS, Fox, and NBC television affiliates. I could go on and on with your introduction, John. You've been extremely productive over the years, but let's talk about these other things together, like your seven books and your award-winning winery, because I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to say. So I'll begin by saying welcome, John, to the Ollie at UNT podcast. Well, thank you, Susan. I feel honored to be the inaugural guest here. I'm very excited about it. Of all of the great UNT alums that we've had over the years, I really appreciate it. Well, we're excited to have you. Thank you so much. I know you have an extremely busy schedule, and we're very pleased to have you here. Now, you served in one of the most dangerous crime-ridden neighborhoods in Dallas, where armed robberies, prostitution, carjacking, gang shootings, and murder were everyday experiences. It must have seemed like an insurmountable challenge when you first began. And I understand you were one of the first officers to incorporate the broken window approach to the the area you patrolled. Can you explain what the broken window approach is? 
Yeah, back in the late 80s, early 90s, we had some of our worst crimes in Dallas's history. We were averaging about 500 murders a year. Compare that today, and they average about 200 murders a year. So you're exactly right. Robberies, prostitution, gang shootings, gang violence was kind of the norm back then. As a matter of fact, in one eight-hour shift in my North Oak Cliff neighborhood, I went to seven different separate shooting. Many officers don't see that in a year or in a career, and that was one day. But when I took over the beat in North Oak Cliff on Jefferson Boulevard and the Davis area that is really, really popular right now, Bishop Arts District, back then it was very crime-ridden. And one of the things that we had to do, I put my UNT business experience to work and my experience as a small businessman and said, if we're going to recover this neighborhood, the first thing we need to do is we need to stop the crime. The second thing we need to do is spur economic development. And that's not going to happen unless we stop the crime. So we went around. I assembled the business owners. And I could tell you how bad it was. I went to one business owner and walked in and said, hey, it looks like you guys are doing good. You haven't had a crime here at all that I see. And they say, are you kidding? We get robbed every week. And I said, I don't have any reports of it. They go, oh, we don't call the police anymore. It's just a cost of doing business. And, And that was the attitude back then. That's how prevalent the crime was. And so it really took a collaborative effort between the local Main Street group, the Jefferson Area Association, the Dallas Police Department, and most of all, the business owners to believe that we could turn that area around. So we started really clamping down on the criminals, the prostitutes, on beefing up our patrols, arresting people for everything that we could possibly think of, and setting the tone on the street that crime is not going to be a cost of doing business. It's not going to be an everyday event. It's going to be out of the ordinary. And it took us a couple of years, but we ended up winning not only a National Downtown Association Award, but I was lucky enough to fly to Canada and receive the International Downtown Association Award for revitalizing the North Oak Cliff area and getting rid of a lot of that crime and violent behavior. That's really impressive. The improved communication must have been phenomenal from what it was before. When you started meeting with all these groups, they knew that you were there and you were a face that they could see. The police are here and they're not even going to let petty crimes happen. These crimes are going to stop. Well, and it was as simple. I mean, I went around to each of the business owners and handed them a piece of paper and said, you will be at this meeting at this day and this time. And they looked at it like, oh, my God, is this a subpoena? Well, I didn't tell them it wasn't put it that way. And we had almost 200 people show up from our two mile long commercial strip. And that really set the tone that we're here, we're fighting crime, but you've got to do your part as a business owner. And one of the first things I did, and it was kind of out of the ordinary, I went to a local hardware store and I purchased a bunch of brooms. Now, this is a cop in uniform with guns and cuffs purchasing brooms. (laughs) And I went around and I handed the brooms out to business owners. And I told them every morning before I start my shift, I'm going to go sweep up in front of my office and I'd like you to do the same. 
Well, they looked at me like I was crazy. And the first morning I was out there sweeping in front of my office and I was by myself. But it was amazing, Susan. After just a few days, people saw that and they saw that I meant it. And everybody started getting their brooms. And as a matter of fact, I had to go to a bigger store and buy more brooms to hand them out. And that really showed, uh, really modeled for them what I wanted them to do, that broken windows theory, that if they see a broken window, fix it. If they see trash, pick it up. If they see graffiti, cover it up, because we have to fight crime, not only on a social level, but on an environmental level. And that's what really turned around that section of Dallas. That's an incredible story. I absolutely love that. And as I understand it, your improved communication with the residents in the Oak Cliff area that you were assigned to led to that break in a very famous case on a serial killer with the fairly creepy nickname, the Eyeball Killer. Yes, you know, during that time, not only did we have the gang violence going on and the drug dealing and the drug epidemic, but we had a serial killer on our beat. And and it was the improved communications and not just with the citizens who were very helpful in the case. Once we built up trust and built a relationship with them where they realized, hey, we're not the enemy out here. We're trying to protect you. We're trying to make your community safe. If we make your community safe, your business is going to survive. Your business is going to thrive even. And it's a win-win for everybody. And that's what I, throughout my business career and law enforcement career, always try to create as a win-win. The other group that we really built a relationship with was the people that the killer was preying on. And that was the prostitutes that were working in the North Oak Cliff area. As a beat cop, you build up a relationship with all of the good people on your beat and the criminals on your beat. You meet them all the time, you arrest them, you're taking them to jail, but you're also talking to them about their life, about their family, about their circumstances. And that relationship with the prostitutes gave us information that the detectives, that FBI, that everyone that was working the case did not have. And it was one of the few cases in U.S. history where a beat officer, which is what I was at the time, actually tracked down and caught a working serial killer. Amazing. You wrote an interesting book called The Eyeball Killer about your involvement with breaking the case and catching Charles Albright. Something that really struck me was his intelligence and his talents, and most notably his Jekyll and Hyde type of personality. Can you fill the listeners in on the case and on the person that was responsible for those murders? Yeah, Charles Albright was convicted of uh, killing one of the prostitutes on my beat. Um, There were three prostitutes that were killed in a very short period of time. He had been using the services of the prostitutes for an extremely long time. We found out that he had been beating them and torturing them, actually paying them extra money to be tortured. He had a a torture chamber set up at one of his many properties that he had in the area. But he was known to residents in the area as an intelligent, articulate individual that volunteered at church, that played on the softball team. To some people, he was a musician. To others, he was an artist. 
just in the end, he was simply a con man and someone that had grown up really with a life of petty crimes. And it kept escalating and escalating into violence against women, the torturing of the prostitutes, and finally the killing of the prostitutes. And the thing that makes this case even more gruesome, and the reason the book is called The Eyeball Killer, is that he would take the women and then surgically remove their eyes. And we never did find their eyes, by the way. But after the book was first published by Pinnacle and by Doubleday, I got calls from literally all over the world of people saying, I read the book and uh, I think I know where the eyes are. So very, very interesting. And over the years, it's been served as the basis for many, many television shows, NCIS and CSI and Cold Case, HBO, and it's been featured on many, many Discovery ID channels. And it's a, a very interesting case. It is. It's quite bizarre. Did you or anyone else ever figure out what his obsession was with eyes? Well, we've got certain theories about it. I think the most prevalent is that he did taxidermy as a child and his mother would never let him spend the money for the glass or marble eyes that went into the animals. We also know that many paintings he did, he left out the eyes in the paintings. We found literally thousands of pictures that he would go to sporting events and take pictures just of women's eyes. And even in prison, he had cut out eyes of women and put them up on the cell so that he could look at them. That is so very bizarre. I can imagine that with the long career that you had with the Dallas Police Department, I would imagine he's one of the more bizarre cases. I'm hoping that he was. Certainly. And I've been in this business 37 years last month, served in many, many capacities from officer to chief. And it's been a great career, but uh, you're right. I've had the opportunity to be involved in many cases, not just in this area, but around the country with the work that I've done with DOJ over the years and some very, very interesting things. Put it this way, I've written seven books and I probably have enough content for another 20 if I find time to sit down and write them all down. Keep writing. I'll keep reading. You keep writing. What led (laughs) you to write this book? What made you think after these murders, I have to write a book about this? Well, it kind of ties in with two books here, the Police Perspective book and the Eyeball Killer book. During the time of the case, I was writing a weekly column for a Dallas paper, and the column was called Police Perspective. That was part of that community outreach you and I were talking about in that communication. And I actually just walked up to the editor of the paper and said, hey, I want to write a column. And he goes, have you ever done it before? And I said, no. He goes, what? And I go, no, let me write a column. I need to reach the people in this area. It was the most widely read paper in in the area. And I started writing it. And lo and behold, it became the most popular column in the paper. And actually, I was so, so fortunate to win the Texas Press Association Award for column writing, which is the highest award in the state. And so that was that was really nice. But what it did is it connected me with the community and the community with me. I'd be sitting in a restaurant, people would have me come in and they'd have copies of the column I wrote. And it may have been about them or about their family, or it may have been about a case or something they were interested in. And they'd ask me to autograph the, the columns. And so it really made a connection with the people out there. So I was already 
collecting all of this data, you might say, for my weekly column. And as the case progressed, I knew. And you got to remember, this is before Silence of the Lambs and all of the serial killer shows that came out throughout the 1990s. I knew that this was going to be noteworthy, and I kept copious notes. And all along, I planned to turn this into a book. It was originally published by Pinnacle, a mass publication, then a Doubleday picked it up, published it internationally. It, it just kind of exploded from there. And uh, eventually, all of those columns that I was writing during during that time and beyond turned into the police perspective book that I published, I think it was 20 years later. So it's amazing how things all kind of tie together. It truly is. And I just want to mention the title of that book. It's called Police Perspective, Life on the Beat. Just so our listeners have an idea of the title of that. It has to be filled with many, many interesting stories. And what an incredible way to let the community know that you care about them and that you're a real face and a real figure where they live. Yeah, it really worked out great. Like I said, being out there on the beat, working with them every day, seeing them in the evenings, going to the meetings, writing the column. And even during that time, I was doing guest appearances on uh, Good Day Dallas, a lot of appearances on Fox. And it was actually during the early 90s that I started my work with both CNN and Fox News. And so again, it was kind of the totality of everything. Folks, uh, it, you know, gave me some legitimacy and gave our work some legitimacy. And then by capturing the serial killer and all of that notoriety, the community really understood, wow, we're in this together and we're going to make this neighborhood better, which is what we did. And then after your tenure with the Dallas Police Department, there's another segue into really being part of that community and community of the whole country. You developed expertise in the study and prevention of mass shootings, and you created the Community Safety Institute. Can you tell the listeners what the mission was of the Institute or is? Is it still in existence? Oh, yes, it's still in existence, and we still get calls. It's one of the many hats that I wear. The Community Safety Institute focuses on mass shootings that occur around the country. We were the first ones to really research every mass shooting and look at the victims of the shootings. You know, most people, when they want to research or write about mass shootings, are fascinated about the gunmen, and yes, that is fascinating, but I wanted to know what could we do to save lives out there. That's what I've been doing my whole career. So what we did is we looked at the victims of the mass shootings and we looked at the ones that survived and we said, what did they do? And can we examine all of these mass shootings and come up with some commonalities and build a model that people can use and replicate if, God forbid, they were ever in one of these mass shootings? We studied every mass shooting back to 1980. We looked at the decisions that individuals made and the tactics that they employed to survive these shootings and came up with a six-step model called ESCAPE. And that's featured in our book, Mass Shooting, Six Steps to Survival. Just in a nutshell, ESCAPE stands for EXIT. If you can, you need to exit the area as quickly as possible. Uh, people kind of go, well, how does this differ from run, hide, fight? Well, if you tell the average citizen to run, what are they going to do? Run. 
But many times by running, you present yourself as a target, like we saw in the Aurora, Colorado shooting and the Walmart shooting, many others. And so run, hide, bite was really just a motto that was adopted by the government and kind of taken on a life of its own. This is the first real research based on what did people actually do? So they exited the scene in a safe manner to get away from the gunman. They seek cover, and there's a cover and concealment. Cover protects you from bullets. So we want to teach them what cover is and how to seek cover, how if they can't escape or exit or seek cover, they can find concealment. Staying out of the shooter's line of sight exponentially increase your ability to survive these situations. We teach them on how to be aware of their surroundings. We teach them how to present a small target and how to engage appropriately as a last resort if they have to engage one of these shooters. And so we've uh, taught this training all over the country. And one of the things I can tell you is during the Las Vegas shooting, literally as the shooting was still going on and I'm getting calls from all of my contacts around the country and I get this one phone call and it was from a doctor and she said, you don't know who I am, but I took your class and because of what you taught me, it saved my life. She was actually in the middle or in the mass shooting out there in Vegas and called me immediately after she got to safety and said, oh my gosh, you saved my life. So it's been really, really rewarding the work that we've been able to do through the Community Safety Institute over years with mass shootings, with school safety. We're one of the first groups to work with school safety. As a matter of fact, back in the early 90s, we were the very first group selected by the Department of Justice to write the national curriculum. And we've had a lot of great projects over the years that have saved lives and stopped assassinations and stopped terror attacks. So it's been a very, very rewarding career. Very noteworthy. We're lucky to have you. And I read in an article about you and how busy you are when these mass shootings occur. And there was a (laughs) quote in there that really interested me. You said, many can be averted if people would speak up. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We do know that about the mass shootings is that especially with school shootings with young people, there's something that we call leakage. Just in short, for kind of power and control, they leak what they're going to do to their fellow classmates. They let them know ahead of time. And if we take it seriously, we call the authorities. If we follow the plans, if we have plans in place, if we make the notifications, Yeah, unfortunately, almost every one of these shootings could have been averted because somebody or in cases, many people knew what was happening, but didn't step up and let law enforcement know so that we could have stopped the shooting. But I can also tell you, Susan, that I've been involved in several, several different instances where we were able to gather the information, get warrants and make arrests or stop offenders before they were able to commit a shooting. So, you know, I just encourage everybody, take these threats seriously. If you hear about it, see it posted on a website or whatever, make sure you inform law enforcement. We just need to know. You don't have to get involved. We need to know so that we can stop these horrific attacks. Well, I'll tell you, coming from New York during the time of 9-11, that speaks really to my heart, and I know how important all of this is. And as you can tell by looking at the news, this is something people have to become smart in. We have to be aware of these things. And you mentioned about practicing situational awareness. What do you mean by situational awareness? 
being cognizant of where you are when you go out in public. Are you at a big public event? What are the threats to you at that public event? What are the threats to your family and your children? Look and seek out places for cover, things that would stop bullets if you had to grab your child and pull them behind a concrete pylon or behind some type of machine, bending machine that would protect you from cover. So be situationally aware. When you're out in public, if you're out in a venue, a movie theater, a concert, where are you going to go? What are you going to do in a restaurant? Don't just look at the main exit. We've seen this over and over again. In Las Vegas, everybody rushed to the main exit. Well, many people were hurt and trampled just trying to get to the exit. What are the other exits? What are other ways you can get out? In a restaurant, is there a back door? What if you go through the kitchen? What about a delivery door? So be cognizant of where you are and what you're doing, and that will help you to become situationally aware. You have some terrific experience and some great words of advice for people. And we mentioned your book, Mass Shooting, Six Steps to Survival. And we mentioned The Eyeball Killer and the book on the police perspective. What other books have you written, John? I'd have to look. Creating a Safer School is one of our school safety books. Our most popular book that's literally used by educators all over the country is School Safety 101. So those are two other books that we've done on school safety. So everything is pretty much in the area of safety, school safety, mass shootings, criminal justice, and certainly the serial killer book. Do you have any more in the works? I've got a couple more that are in progress and we'll be releasing those too. Any more with the eyeball killer? The Eyeball Killer right now has been turned into a screenplay. I've optioned it a couple of times as a movie, and we're actually partnering with a local company here in Dallas to film a feature film. And so it's out for casting as we speak. So that's pretty exciting. That's incredible. It is very exciting. So your creativity as an author, you've done that creative process, your creativity as a police officer, certainly working with the community and solving crimes. And then you went on to what I see as a much more serene creative process of raising grapevines and establishing the Casaro Vineyards in Avila, Texas. That's correct. And we're just about (laughs) 20 minutes south of downtown Dallas, straight down I-35. It's a great little community, historic community formed in 1844. We've got a great property out here on nearly three acres, creek and huge pecan trees and gazebos and pergolas and great outdoor space. But the vineyard was really as a relaxation technique for me after you deal with what I've dealt with over the last four decades. Understandable. It is great to walk the vineyards and pick the grapes and to be out there working on the vines and training the grapevines as the young ones are growing up. We've got right now about 2,000 vines, Albergino, Tempranillo, and Sangiovese, which all grow great right here. So the winery was kind of a natural growth of the vineyard. And I've been making wine for quite a long time in small batches and sending it to friends and the clients and serving it at the house for parties and different things. So I think after the first truckload of vine showed up from Napa, my wife said, oh my gosh, what are we going to do with all these grapes? And so uh, she might have known back then that the winery was in our near future. (laughs) 
as I understand it, it came down from your family, right? Your grandparents were from yep. Italy? Yeah, Cassaro is a family name. My grandfather, Joseph Giuseppe, emigrated to the U.S., from Italy. He was from Sicily. My grandmother was from Naples. My grandfather and his dad and his family were in the business when they came to this country. And I remember growing up and going down in the basement and literally seeing a grape press that must have been six feet wide. It was absolutely huge, the grape press that he had in his basement. And so I've been drinking wine and brought up in the Italian tradition my whole life. And so now that I'm growing grapes and making wine, it really been soothing for me. And in the midst of all of the work that I'm doing around the country in criminal justice and the other projects that we have going on, it is nice to sit out back, to see people in the tasting room, and they're smiling, and they're happy, they're enjoying themselves, and the people come here for a good time. That really, really is uh, kind of soothing to me, you might say. Well, you and the Casero Winery have won some pretty impressive awards since you opened in 2015. Can you tell us a little bit about those awards that you've received? We have been so fortunate, let me tell you. It has just been absolutely amazing to me. In the last year alone, I think we've garnered 16 international awards, and these are from huge competitions, competitions with over 3,000 wineries with dozens of countries. So when you're even mentioned in the same breath, as some of these huge wineries. It is just fantastic. Recently in Houston, our rosé, which I think has seven international awards. It's a dry rosé, 100% Sangiovese for the wine drinkers out there. It was named best in class at the Houston International Wine Competition, which is a, a really big competition. That was really neat to receive that. It also received the blue ribbon at the State Fair of Texas. And so we've been just really, really fortunate. I can't thank the folks enough that uh, have come out, have tried the wine and enjoyed the wine and enjoyed being here. And, you know, winning the medals is just kind of uh, icing on the cake, you might say. Now, I'd be very remiss if I didn't mention your generosity with your Tempranillo wine in connection with UNT. You have the official UNT alumni wine, and a portion of those proceeds go to the UNT Alumni Association to support a variety of alumni functions, scholarships, and advancement activities. That's amazing. And the bottle looks fantastic, too. Well, thank you. And it's a great way to give back. You're getting my bachelor's and master's there at North Texas, the experience I had, the instructors that I had, and then a lot of lessons that I still use today, I learned at UNT. So for me, it was just a way that we can give back. And, and it's been great. We've had alumni from all over come to the winery, buy the UNT wine, order it online at the website, send it to their UNT graduates. We've had folks come in and buy bottles for parents that are alumni and siblings and children. Uh, we've and had one former UNT homecoming queen come in here with her sash and with her tiara and hold the bottle of wine and get her picture taken and stuff. So it's great to see how the UNT alumni community is supporting the wine and the proceeds, like you said, go to the alumni association to fund things like scholarships and advancement activities. So it's really rewarding. That is fantastic. 
John, so you're located in a villa, so you're very close to downtown Dallas. You say it's a 20-minute drive south? Yeah, about 21 minutes south of downtown Dallas. I make that drive to AAC regularly, so I'm very familiar with it. Straight down I-35 at the uh, Ovilla Road exit. Ovilla is a small community founded in 1844, and it's known for a couple of things. We're right on one of the creeks here in Ovilla. There are two creeks, and they're kind of famous for the baptisms uh, that have occurred here over the years. The community has many, many churches here, and they were using the creeks for baptisms. The community is also known for its historic downtown district. They filmed a number of movies down here, a number of television shows, and it's kind of infamous for on one of the creeks. That area was used by Bonnie and Clyde as one of their campsites. Legend has it the townspeople would go to the store in town and get supplies and bring them down to the creek to Bonnie and Clyde. So this is a, a great getaway. We're very close to Dallas, Arlington, Fort Worth, Mansfield, the entire Metroplex. We get lots of folks that come from Plano and Frisco and North Dallas. At the winery, we have live music every Friday night, and a lot of our North Dallas folks beat the traffic, come down here and, and spend the evening and go back, and there's no traffic at all. So it's really neat being a, a part of the Metroplex and so close to everybody that they can come down and experience some of our wines. I had also heard on another interview of yours, you had a very unique and interesting team building activity that you held at the winery where corporation would bring their team and then they made wine together. I thought that was, in, or they bottled wine or whatever. What did they do together? <laughs> yeah, no, we actually host a lot of corporate events here at the winery, as well as weddings and bridal showers and all kinds of things like that. Uh, but one of our team building activities is for um, small groups to meet in the front room and go through some team building activities, lectures, instruction. Then we uh, pick a leader and bring them back into the winery and they will actually get to bottle wine with us. And so it's a really interesting management study, uh, coordinating the people, having folks that are bottling, corking, labeling, capsuling. You know, we're a small winery, so we do everything by hand. Myself, my sons, my wife, all of the family, we're out in the vineyard every day. We're working on the vines. We're working with the grapes. We harvest the grapes. We make the wine right here. We bottle it, label it, uh, capsule it. Everything is done by hand. And so it takes, uh, you know, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11 people just to do the bottling on one of our tanks here in the winery. And so it's a great team building activity for a different type of activity for companies that want to come down and do that. It sounds like a lot of fun. I'm going to have to find out what those companies are so I can go get a job there. I would <laughs> enjoy doing that. And it's 100% Texas wine, right? Yes. Yep. So the grapes come from our vineyard, which is right down the street and from the high plains of Texas. And so we've been focusing. We think it's really important to provide Texas wine and to give back to Texas. And it's been so great to us. And so 100% Texas wines is what we serve here. So how do you know when you have a particularly good vintage? When the people smile, let me tell you. Yeah, <laughs> that that, every day. That's the best thing. I, I'm not kidding. To, again, from nearly four decades in law enforcement to walk into the winery and see groups laughing and 
the talking and drinking the wine and enjoying it. And we've got red wine, white wine, rosé, sweet, dry, about 13 different varietals right now. Uh, and everybody has their own favorite, and that's fine, and that's fantastic. So that's how I know if it's good, if people enjoy it and they come back for more. That's what's satisfying to me. When I'm in the winery and I'm tinkering with the wine, sometimes I may think, well, it's not ready, it's not ready, it's not ready. And my family will come up and go, no, we really think it's good. Let's bottle it and get it out to the public. It's really neat seeing what different people like and seeing how their taste buds evolve or what we call graduate from folks that came in and started drinking sweet wines and are now drinking semi-sweets or drinking some of the more robust reds. It's really kind of neat to see that. Has anything surprised you in this venture as far as being a winemaker? There's a surprise every week, Susan, <laughs> let me tell you. You know, the grapes surprise you. It's a different vintage every year. Even though you're growing the same grape, it may not hang as long. It may not have the alcohol content or the tannins. So you've got an agricultural product that you're working with. You've got a retail room where you're doing the tastings. And then you have things like a pandemic that closed you down for two months. You've got the retail side of selling and marketing. You've got the manufacturing side of actually making the wine and modeling the wine, labeling the wine, and all of the government regulations that go with it. I've run several different companies over my life, but running a winery is really like running three different companies at the same time, and you've got to make them work in alignment and in unison with each other. So it's uh, challenging from that perspective and rewarding from watching people enjoy the wine or going out there a Friday night, I'm going to sit outside. It's going to be great weather. We'll listen to live music and drink a little wine. I'm like, it doesn't get any better than that. That's fantastic. Do you have some goals that you're trying to achieve here in the near future with the winery or are you just going uh, one step at a time? I'm always kind of outcome driven. I'm looking to expand the winery in several different areas, expand the different wines that we have, expand our selection, increase the tasting room. We'd like to put in an Italian pizza oven that we can serve. We started serving meat and cheese boards imported from Italy. We do a bunch of private tastings with chocolate and wine tastings with chocolate imported from Tuscany, uh, mm. olive oils and balsamics imported from Italy. So a lot of experiences that folks can't get in other places in the Metroplex, and we have it right here in Ovilla. So I want to keep increasing that. Well, thank you, John. I, I could just go on and on talking to you because you have so many elements in your life that are fascinating and interesting and extremely outstanding and good to know about. And I particularly want to thank you for the service that you provided both to the city of Dallas and catching the bad guys and what you're doing today for helping us stay safe in these all too frequent mass shootings, as well as your generosity toward UNT and your efforts to support scholarships and advancement activities. You are quite a guy. And of course, thank you for speaking with me today. Thank you, Susan. I really appreciate it. This has been Susan Supak at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, speaking with John Matthews at the University of North Texas. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please go back and listen to our previous interviews. 
which you can find on our website, olli.unt.edu slash podcast, or by searching for the Ollie at UNT podcast in your favorite podcast app. While you're in the app, don't forget to subscribe and give us a rating. We also encourage you to share our podcast with your family and friends. Join us again next week for another episode.